If you have your Bibles this morning, can you open them up to Colossians chapter 3? Well, we're at the last sermon in this series called The Lord of the Rings, our series on marriage. If you've missed the first 11, I'm going to sum it up a little bit this morning, but I encourage you if you want to, it's all located on the website, the notes, the video, or the MP3. But I want to encourage us to do something this morning, and this is what makes preaching both uh, enjoyable and challenging. I've spent all week working on this message, and I'm trusting that God has been working in me and through me to bring this to you, but that's only half of, that's only half of preaching. The other half to preaching is he has to work in you to receive it. Because if I preach to hearts that are hardened and I scatter that seed, the seed is not going to penetrate. You know that. If I preach to hearts that are soft in, but there's a lot of rocks, there's a lot of thorns, a lot of worries of this world, a lot of busyness, it could take root for a short time and then wither. So what I'm asking you to do this morning is what I've been asking the Lord to do in me all week, and that is to get us ready to hear His Word. Because it's not enough just to hear it, we've got to listen to it. It's not enough just to even hear it, we've got to live it. We've got to apply it immediately. So what I'm asking this morning is that you apply the Word of God immediately in the areas that He is speaking to you about. I do want to tell you this, and I forgot. I don't know why I have to make this announcement I was asked to, but our toilets now work. It's a little embarrassing. Stuff you have to do as a pastor. Don't everybody leave at once. I want to tell you something about John Wesley, brother of Charles. I don't know if you've ever heard this. I never knew this until this last week. It's astounding to me. But John Wesley once stumbled on a bridge, and he severely sprained his ankle. And his friends that were with him took him to the home of a woman named Mary Bazile. She was a widow. She had several children. She lived on Threadneedle Street. And she cared for John Wesley until his ankle healed enough for him to walk out of there. You know, he ended up asking her to marry him. And she said yes, and they married, but it was a disaster. See, Mary liked a quiet, comfortable home, and it was difficult for her to give that up, to travel with her husband, to stay in all of the uncomfortable inns on his speaking routes. And so she began to oppose John Wesley's ministry. Can you believe that? She began to oppose it. I mean, how often have we heard this about one of the most significant saints of God in the last 500 years, she began to oppose his ministry, even giving out information to his enemies, even taking his letters and changing them and making additions to make Wesley look even worse. Do you know that one, at one point, Mary grabbed Wesley's hair and dragged him around the floor of her home? This is true. His unhappy marriage encouraged him to work even harder 
and spend more time away from home until finally she left him and they divorced. Why are you laughing? Oh, who said that? Ken, I told you, don't speak this morning. Remember? Just sit back there and listen. Remember those two guys in the Muppet Stadium? You're the better half. Marriage can be truly beautiful. Amen? But it can be tragic. And I'm telling you that there's probably no greater display of faith apart from salvation than on the, the day of your wedding when you come to the altar not being able to see 20 years down the road and you commit the rest of your life to an individual. You're certain, you're sure that this is the right thing to do, but you cannot see the future. That is faith. And it could be difficult. And the reason that it is difficult, friends, listen, I'm putting every bit of blame for the difficulty on marriage, not on men, ladies, and not on the wives, men, on sin. And that's the historical record of Scripture. We struggle in marriage because most fundamentally because of sin. Now listen to this, you ready? Adam and Eve chose to sin and pursue their own selfish ends, and they received from that illicit act a sentence from God that's been passed down to every man and every woman who has ever lived since. And ladies, you may not want to hear this, but go back and review the sermon from Genesis 3.16. Every woman, to the degree that sin reigns in your heart, you will want to take over the leadership of your home. That was the sentence that God gave to Adam. And every man to the degree that sin is mastery, has mastery in your hearts, you will want to respond, you will want to control, you will want to dominate your wife in an ungodly, harsh manner. And every marriage, to the degree that sin reigns in the couple's hearts, will dance this cycle of difficulty until Jesus Christ leads them into freedom by His grace. And there's good news, and it's the gospel applied to marriage. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God. Friends, listen, He has provided the antidote to the curse. He's provided the only key available to the prison that God locked the woman and the man into, and he can lead them free, husbands and wives, into the freedom of grace with one another. But there's no other way but through Christ. And you can go to 15 wonderful, awesome marriage seminars, and after the dust settles and the euphoria fades, you're back to who you are with hearts of sin. And not only does Jesus lead husbands and wives free from these prisons of sin, friends, listen to me, this has been what we've been trying to see for the last three weeks. He takes the fig clothes off their bodies 
and he gives them a brand new wardrobe of grace that becomes more and more brilliant the longer you live. And we saw what that wardrobe was last week. You remember, it was compassion, it's kindness, it's meekness, it's humility, it's patience, it's forbearance, it's forgiveness. And all over all of that is the belt called love. And it holds the entire wardrobe in place. It's the fashion choice for the chosen, holy, dearly loved people of God. And friends, this wardrobe looks great on God's people. And when we will obediently pull it on, all eight pieces of it, we can have a supremely satisfying, not just marriage, but relationships with friends, relationships with brothers and sisters, and neighbors and coworkers and classmates, and above all, the most significant one on earth, marriage. And they can be glorifying to God. So what's going to happen if the chosen dearly loved, holy people of God, obediently put on all eight pieces of that wardrobe of grace, what's that going to do in marriage? Can I tell you four things it's going to do in marriage, according to Paul in Colossians 3, 15 through 19? The first one is going to give you a marriage of peace. Friends, don't you want a marriage of peace? A marriage where peace rules and let the peace of christ verse 15 rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body friends to be full of peace means a whole lot more than just not having conflict to be full of peace to be ruled by peace means more than just not fighting did you know that peace Or as the Jews always said it, shalom. Did you know that peace is actually a commodity? It's not a fuzzy feeling where you don't feel like fighting. Peace is a thing. It's an object. It's a gift that God gives. It's his property that he gives to his people. Look what he says in Psalm 29. May the Lord give strength to his people. Listen. May the Lord bless his people with peace. If you don't have peace in your marriage, you're not receiving it. You're not holding it. You're not taking it from the hands of God. Because he gives it as a commodity. But the word in the Greek means Irene. If you say hi to Irene Pfeiffer, then you need to know that her name means peace. But what does peace mean? It mean, It's a word that means to join or to bind what has been separated. You won't have peace until what's been separated through conflict, through unfaithfulness, through anger, through irritation, what's been brought back together. Now you know peace. You've been given it from God. And peace between us and God, vertical peace. Listen, look at this. Vertical peace is a prerequisite. It has to occur before horizontal peace can happen. If you don't have vertical peace from God, friends, you can't live in the type of peace that Christ gives. You have nothing to give. You have no peace in your life to give to them. Yes, you can stop fighting, but peace means more than that. 
It's the, it's the power of Christ ruling in our hearts that keeps two sinful wandering people one. You know, the Greek word for rule was used in athletic games for the umpire. The, the umpire for these athletic games, this was his title, the, the word rule. And it was his job to arbitrate over arguments and discrepancies in the games and to make rulings in different difficult situations. Not just once, Paul says, don't let that peace rule once. Let it continually rule all the time. Let the binding power of God that can hold you into oneness and unity, let it constantly arbitrate over all of the things that come into your lives. Have you ever had a conflict with your spouse and gone away from each other for a time? Maybe you rolled over. I've done this. You roll over and you go to sleep and you wake up the same gnawing, uneasy, sick feeling the very second you wake up the same way you went to bed. And that gnawing feeling, that feeling of dis-ease, that feeling of peacelessness is Christ, our ruling empire, who is whistling and telling you that you're out of bounds. And to get back in the game and play right. And as far as it depends on you, be at peace with your spouse. He's saying, Christ is, look at your heart. Yours, not your wife's, not your husband's. Look at your heart and see if he's whistling to you, if he's holding up the flag to your behavior. Friends, that gnawing feeling, that feeling of dis-ease is the peace of God, the peace of Christ that's ruling, that's whistling, that's throwing the flag, telling you you're out of bounds, you've committed a fault, you need to get back into the game, ask for forgiveness, and restore your relationship so you can have peace. It's that feeling of losing peace, of being out of peace with our spouse that ought to move us, that God is inflicting in us to move us humbly to reconcile. See, marriage is full of conflicts. We all know that. And the big three reasons that people usually come into marriage counseling are help with finances, lack of communication, and problems in sexuality. Those are the big three reasons. But there are thousands other opportunities for us to display grace to one another. And when we have differences of opinions, when we have different motives and different desires, I want this and she wants that, and they come into conflict, then the peace of Christ got, has to whistle and step in and rule and move us to give up our rights, give up our desires, and find what he is saying. Do you realize that's what I do more than any other time in conflict resolution? Conflict resolution, friends, is not getting rid of conflict. Because when you look through a microscope and you resolve the object under the lens, all you're doing is bringing into clarity the different parts. That's what resolution means. When we, conflict res when we resolve conflicts, all we're doing is trying to gain clarity as to what is really the problem. 
And the moment that you see what is really the problem becomes the process of giving up the right to be right, which we call humility, and moving in the power of the peace of Christ to go back to one another and be bound as one. Rather than the options which are peace-breaking, peace-breakers are those angry, controlling, manipulative, critical, demeaning people who as soon as you get everybody mad in your family, all of a sudden experience an equilibrium and a peacefulness. Why? Because you're back in control and everybody else is mad. That's a peace-breaker. Or you've got peace Fakers who are the ones that sweep everything under the rug. You don't want to deal with conflict because conflict is too messy. And so you deny it. And you don't speak truly. And you've got peace breakers and marry peace fakers. And all of a sudden you can't have peace. You've got a sick, dysfunctional marriage. that cannot bring glory to God or satisfaction to anybody. And Jesus Christ wants to come in and he wants to whistle. He wants to be your empire. And he wants to move you to humility to find out what's really what's wrong. To give up the right to be right. To come back together as one. Friends, that's the peace of Christ that rules. But if you wear this wardrobe of grace and if you understand you're chosen, holy and dearly loved, there's going to be another result in your marriage. You're going to have a marriage filled with thankfulness. Look what he says. In verse 15, to be thankful with thankfulness in your hearts to God, giving thanks to God. He says this, not just verse 15, but through the next couple. Three times we're to be thankful. Can I tell you something? I think it's probably worthy to be at least remembered, if not written down. Thankfulness is so powerful in marriage precisely because it destroys pride and preserves peace. Now, did you know that it's impossible to be genuinely thankful at the same time you're full of pride? You cannot possibly do that. Thankfulness is the antithesis of pridefulness. Thankfulness is the realization that I've been given something good that I don't deserve. And in marriage, thankfulness continually reminds us that the goodness of God is on full display and the one that's sleeping right next to me. It's God's wisdom who led that person to me in marriage because there's things that I can't see that have got to be refined and redeemed out of my life, and that's the best tool on earth to do it. Thank you, God, for the gift of my spouse. That's thankfulness in marriage, because thankful people are deeply aware of receiving what they didn't deserve. Men and women, husbands and wives, how often, honestly, how often do you express thankfulness to your spouse? Not just thank you for the meal. Not thank you for doing the laundry. Not thank you for earning a paycheck. But thank you for who you are and God's wisdom on display in your life. You might be saying, if you knew my spouse, you wouldn't tell me to thank God. But I would tell you, if you begin to thank God for him or her, you're going to develop an appreciation for the gift that person really is for you. 
Something that Dr. Crane, a psychologist, learned from a woman who came to him for counseling and confided to him that she hated her husband and that she was going to divorce him. And she said to Dr. Crane, I want to hurt him all I can. And he said to her, well, in that case, I advise you to start showering him with compliments. And when you have become absolutely indispensable to him, when he thinks you love him devotedly, then hand him that day the divorce papers. That's the way to hurt him. It was some months later that she came back to Dr. Crane to report that all things were going well in the plan and she had followed his course that he had suggested and Dr. Crane said to her, good, now, now is the time to file for divorce. And she claimed, she proclaimed divorce. Why would I want to divorce him? I love my husband dearly. Because she learned a lesson that when you begin expressing thankfulness, your heart follows. You know that, right? A thankful heart creates praise. Now think, you got to think, put your minds in gear. A thankful heart creates praise. You can't praise if you have no thankfulness. Thankfulness is the motivation for praise. A thankful heart creates praise, and a life of praise is twin to a life of devoted, loving faithfulness. Thankfulness is the profound amazement at the charity and the love of God that aches to be presented back to him by an increase of devotion and praise and service. And friends, it works exactly the same way in marriage. Thankfulness produces devotion, faithfulness, and service. And Paul says, let your hearts be full of thanks. Now, friends, he's leading up to verse 18 and 19, which is all about marriage. This is all prerequisites to have the marriage that is supremely satisfying and glorifying to God. If we're going to have marriages like that, then, men, you've got to begin thanking your wife. I've got to begin thanking my wife. And wives, you've got to begin thanking your husbands, not for what they do as much for who they are. There's a third result, however, of this kind of marriage that we're talking about. It's a marriage centered on God's word. Look what Paul says. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. You know that word dwell means to live in a home and keep it. Do you understand the power of the word dwell? I'm going to tell you it's probably my most favorite word in all of scriptures. I've been studying this for years because it captivated me when I began to learn that Adam and Eve were expelled out of the presence of God, out of the Garden of Eden, and all of a sudden God, through the rest of the pages of the human history of himself called the Bible, is on a recovery pro process to bring his people back to his center where he could dwell with them. We see that in the tabernacle as God came down and dwelled in the tabernacle. And then we saw that in the more permanent structure of the temple as God presided in his glory down into the most holy of holies of the temple. And then we saw in the New Testament that Jesus, John 1.14, came and 
dwelled in flesh like one of us to be around his people, but it's not close enough. So he left, he committed, he, he worked, he did his, his gospel work on the cross and he rose back to his father and the spirit came to dwell with us and where two or more are gathered, God dwells in our midst, but still there's sin in the flesh. And so there's going to be a point one day in Revelation that we're going to hear God say, I'm dwelling with you now fully. I'm coming off the throne. I'm going to wipe the tears from your face and you're going to see me face to face. I will dwell with you forever. Friends, I just summed up the entire history of God's redemptive story in one word, dwell. That's what he's doing. And when Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, God wants to live in your hearts through his word. Because when he lives in our hearts through his word, listen, it gives him free access to every room of your heart. Now think with me for a moment. How about your office of your heart where your money's managed? Does he dwell there? How about the garage where your hobbies are pursued and your time is spent? Or how about the bedroom of intimacy? Is God, Jesus Christ, through his word, dwelling there? Or in the living room of hospitality as you open up your home for not only your family but other people sometimes in need. Is Jesus dwelling there through his word or the den of your choice where you entertain yourself, where you choose what can entertain you? Does Jesus sit right there and dwell with you through his word? Because listen, when he, when he does that, when God's word dwells in our hearts, it purifies and sweeps clean every single room in your heart. And you'll know if he's dwelling in your heart because all of a sudden you're going to be able to see your own fault and your own pride in the midst of conflict that you used to think was always the other person's fault. You're going to experience godly sorrow because of your behavior. You're going to experience a restless, a relentless encouragement to sacrifice what you want for what your spouse wants. And you're going to have a greater desire to serve your husband and your wife. You're going to listen to your spouse more when they speak. And you're going to have an ever-growing thankfulness and appreciation for the one that God has given to you. That's what Christ's word does when he dwells in our hearts. Because his word feeds the Christian soul. It nourishes, it strengthens Christian couples to love one another. And when the word of God dwells, look what he says in chapter 3, when it dwells in our, our hearts, we live out our faith. He says, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So that everything that comes out of our mouths and everything that we put our hands to doing brings glory to the name of Christ and brings supreme satisfaction to the one you're married to. But we now move to the last result of wearing this wardrobe of grace that impacts our marriage. Look what he says in verse 18 and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This is a marriage restored finally. 
What we started at the beginning of this series, we've now reached the end and we've seen that the end is Jesus Christ, that he does restore marriages greater even than what Adam and Eve had. You know, and Paul's ladies, look up here. I want to speak to you for a second, whether you're married or not. In Paul's culture, verses 18 and 19 would have absolutely been shocking. Because a woman was a thing. She had no legal rights. This is the Greek culture spreading around the world and it reduced femininity to being a commodity owned by a man. Did you know, ladies, if you lived back in Paul's day, you never, ever walked on the streets alone. You never went shopping but for food. And often that was even the slave's job. And you were only one step above the slave in your house. I'm not making this up. This is the culture that worldliness had brought marriage to. Respectable Greek women lived in in seclusion. And complete servitude and chastity, chastity were demanded of her. Under Jewish and Greek law, the privileges all belonged to the husband. The duties all belonged to his wife. And the practical effect, ladies, if you were living then, was that your husband was your dictator. And you were little more than a servant to tend to all of his needs. And all of a sudden, like the sun breaking through after a storm, here comes Christianity, and it's restoring marriage to its rightful, beautiful state of grace. It's a partnership. And wives are now helpmates, not slaves. And husbands are gracious leaders, not dictators. You see, listen, you've got to get this or you're just, you're not even going to get the entire series. The best of the world, Hellenization called Greek culture, the spread of it. The best of the world was a Greek culture and it had reduced marriage to exactly the curse of Genesis 3.16 where men dominated women. And here comes Christianity to restore it so that marriage was no longer just for convenience. Now, unheard of, unthinkably, marriage is actually for joy, intimacy, and happiness. That was foreign to them. And all of a sudden we see Genesis 3.16 being undone through the antidote of Christ. There Eve would try to rule her husband and Adam would respond in a harsh and dominating way. Here we see the original intent of marriage restored so that chosen, holy, and dearly loved believers can wear the wardrobe of grace to one another in marriage so that they can actually, wives can actually want to submit to her husband and husbands can actually fully love their wives. Ladies, I am sorry that you have to live in a day where they have made submission a curse word. It is wrong what our world has done with that word. Submit doesn't mean women are inferior to men. It doesn't mean they're lower in quality. That was the great lie of the Greek culture. Or that 
To submit means to be a doormat, to be stepped on by your husband. Wives, ladies, you've got the same exact worth in the eyes of God that any man does. He loves you just as much as he loves any man. You're just as precious to him. There is no difference. And submit doesn't mean, or it does mean rather, to voluntarily place yourself under another person's authority and to remain in place. That's what the word means. Voluntarily, not under compulsion, not forcefully. She's not to dominate or lead her husband, but follow his leadership as long as it does not compromise her loyalty to Christ. It's part of what it means when Paul says, as is fitting in the Lord. But men, listen to me if you would, and I'm almost finished. I would argue that the courageous and gracious leadership of husbands must take the initiative. Husbands must continually love their wives. Love is a verb. It's not a noun. It's a verb. Meaning that it is the action of cherishing somebody. I want you to make sure you get that. Love is the act of cherishing something or somebody that is precious to you. Now, men, husbands, I want you to think about that in the context of your wives. Is she precious to you? And are you living that out, verb, are you living that out to convince her so? That she is absolutely cherished by you. Man, God is so serious that we love our wives. Look what Peter says. You better wake up, guys. Look at what he says. Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel so that your prayers may not be hindered. You want hindered prayers? Then treat your wives disgracefully. Because God won't listen to a prayer of a man who's not loving and honoring his wife. And men, wives who struggle to submit. Now, you know, you're married. You know if your wife struggles in submission. And if she struggles to submit to you, it's almost always, I've never seen an exception. I'm sure there's one somewhere. But it's almost always because at some time in their life, some man has not loved her, loved her and was harsh to her. And the very first man to look at to see if that happened in her life is not her father, it's not her uncle, and resist the tendency to blame an abuser. The first person to look at is you and me. Because the greatest redemptive tool that your wife has on this earth to teach her how to submit to a man the way the church submits to her her. her groom her husband jesus christ is her own husband if she's not walking in that freedom of grace it's often because you're not convincing her that she's precious and treasured and secure in your love in fact friends listen it's unthinkable for a husband to demand submission from his wife if he is not radically loving her And it's equally unthinkable for a wife to refuse to submit to her husband and yet demand and chafe that she's not being loved. 
See, God has given us everything we need in the wardrobe of grace to love and honor one another. There is no Christian that lacks what they need. God wants your marriage to bring glory to Him. And did you realize that your marriage can literally attract people to the kingdom of God? Or your marriage can move them away? Men, love your wives graciously, courageously, lead her spiritually. And ladies, bring your strength to your husband as his helpmate. And submit to his leadership as is fitting in the Lord. And God will make your marriage beautiful. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this series. Thank you for your word. Lord, this has been so powerfully effective in my own marriage. I pray that it will continue to be so. Lord, I pray for my friends and their marriages. Lord, for those who are not yet married that they will gain wisdom from this series and make the right choice at the altar. And even more than that, make the right choices after it. Lord, we love you. We thank you that Jesus Christ came to set us free from the curse of sin, to give us everything in grace we need to love one another dearly. I pray for your help in doing so. In Jesus' name, amen.